Hello and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast, your autoist, moviest, podcastiest podcast that there is. I'm Chris Ratcliffe, and as ever, I'm joined by Martin Spain, and later we will be reviewing Driven Brackets, not that one. <laughs> oh, come on. We should watch that again. We, can, we should. We should watch we should. it again and hear about Jimmy Bly, rookie <laughs> sensation. Especially as, going straight into the news, Apex Racing has hit the track, and if that doesn't mean anything to you, Apex Racing is the fictitious team from the not-at-all-inspired-by-driven Formula One movie that has started shooting at the British Grand Prix. And I don't know if you saw any of the things that were going on around this, but it looks really really interesting the way that they've done it so yeah i saw the i saw if, the, the the pits which look as good as normal team pits if not slightly better the, they have a gold and black um livery that reminds me very much of the rich energy era has <laughs> yes. livery which is a bit of a shame but you know they look like real pits they've got real wings out there the cars are that kind of funny movie racing car thing except more convincing it's a gp2 car as i understand it with some specially designed aero bits that have come from with some help from mercedes and and other people who are prepping the car so it's it's a genuine racing car it's on genuine pirelli slicks it's got a what looks pretty close to a formula one rear wing but it's got the GP2 engine that spits flames. I don't know why they don't make the Formula One engine spit flames. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, I mean, the cars on track look good. And the actors in their race suits look convincing. I've seen some of the, the mm. clips on socials of them filming various bits in and around the Grand Prix. Um, there's a clip of uh, the two the two driver actors walking along clearly from or going to some kind of racing briefing thing and there's Carlos Sainz in the background and they do just look mm. even though Brad Pitt is in his 60s late 50s I'm not 100% sure I'd how say old he late is 50s. late 50s he still looks absolutely the right kind of build and trimness and you know the kind of skinny enough to fit in a race suit without it bulging anywhere if you know what i mean <laughs> not mentioning anything except uh stallone uh 59 <laughs> bloody hell brad pitt is 59 jesus one thought thing that i did find interesting that came out at the british grand prix was that carlin are running the cars and they're actually doing a lot of work around the grand prix procedures so on the formation uh, sorry, on the grid formation, the two cars were at the back of the grid being prepped by official-looking mechanics and doing all of that sort of stuff. One of the cars... Um, actually, uh, Brad Pitt and... I can't remember the other guy, uh, Thingy Elba, I've named, whose name escapes me. Damson they, Idris. That's the one, Damson Idris. Um, they actually went to the grid and they were standing with the drivers during the National Anthem... They then went back to their cars. The cars were prepped for a start. One of them stayed on the grid. The other one actually followed the last car down the um, start-finish straight on the formation lap, but pulled off into an escape road fairly soon after uh, the first turn. But somebody pointed out, I can't remember who it was, um, that the world feed for F1 has been very, very good 
at kind of cropping them out. I did not and- see them. I was watching this race. I did not know they were on the grid. I did not see hide nor hair of them during the official Sky F1 broadcast. Yep. They would clearly, they'd been very carefully briefed and everything was carefully planned so that they got what they wanted without disturbing F1, which is hugely impressive. A, oh, gotcha. that, you know, they've been able to convince F1 that they're taking this seriously enough that they're going to be allowed to do this. And B, that they did it in such a way that presumably they got all the shots they needed. And then they were just gone, <laughs> gone mm. by the time anyone kind of looked. I imagine if you were there on the day watching from the grandstands, you'd have seen all this going off. But yes. on the world feed, not a thing. No, it's really, really impressive. And looking at the photos... Because was, there was some running of the two cars during the weekend, sort of uh, line astern, getting tracking shots and the like. And looking at the photos, it looks like they are using the Sony Venice cameras, which were the ones famously used in Top Gun Maverick. And they have a bit of a party trick that works really well for applications like this, which is the sensor and the lens mount can be detached from the main camera and then connected via an umbilical cord. So if you look at some of the photos of them running, they have this structure on top of the roll hoop with what looks like some sort of antennas, either for video feed or for follow focus, things like that. But one of the drivers actually has this sensor unit and um, lens mounted essentially kind of in the middle of, not quite their visor, but like in the middle of their forehead. And the car behind has like two or three camera units looking out from the roll hoop. So I think it's, there's going to be some really interesting shots. And I'm, I'm kind of, given the, the fact that it's coming off the back of Top Gun Maverick, I'm really interested to see when they start getting into the camera tech and just seeing where they're putting cameras, what sort of cameras, just how the footage is going to look. So I'm... I'm looking. I am. Yeah, I'm excited. For I that. am interested. The way that they're doing it, Joseph Kaczynski, the director, is coming off of Top Gun Maverick, has a huge amount of credit for for that, and they do seem to be taking this a lick more seriously than maybe Rennie Harlan did for the the original Driven, as it were, where <laughs> they were like, yeah, whatever, let's just get some scaffolding and stick some plastic on the top and then some wheels and that'll do. Um, and, <laughs> uh, much much though, I I sort of have a love-hate relationship with the appalling dog turd that is whatever it is, 2001's Driven. I forget when it was out. Something like it's, that, yeah. It's just such a stinker. But it shows that, you know, Stallone famously tried to do that with F1 and Bernie just told him to go poke it. Um, now Formula One is owned by a media group and is the biggest it's ever been, has its own Netflix series, you can see how the timing is absolutely right to do a Formula One movie. Now, the mm. plot of it appears to be exactly the same as Driven. <laughs> Old crusty guy is brought back in to help a um, you know young hotshot. Um, what I'm a little bit concerned about is that it's written by Aaron Kruger, who was the writer, one of the writers, on um, Top Gun Maverick, although I imagine Christopher McQuarrie, of, more, <laughs> of whom more later... Um, <laughs> did an awful lot of the script work uh, because he's Tom Cruise's go-to collaborator these days. But Aaron Kruger, let me, he's hes credited on IMDb as the writer for this Apex, no, sorry, for this untitled Formula One movie. He is known for the majority of the Transformers sequels. <laughs> oh dear. Right. Scream 3 and 4. Um, 
Dumbo, the Skeleton Key, uh, the Brothers Grimm, The Ring 2, uh, Reindeer Games, famously not a very good Ben Affleck movie, uh, and <laughs> Ghost in the Shell, which I quite enjoyed, even though it's not as good as the original manga. Um, so he's got a kind of variable hit rate, and I would imagine his involvement is probably not... He's not going to be the only writer on it, although right now nobody's working because the rule the writers are quite rightly striking. Mm. But... I am excited to see this movie and it was interesting seeing what filming they were doing at the British Grand Prix. We'll have to see what else comes out of the other Grand Prix because I think they're going to be at a number of other Grand Prix. Yeah, six races total this year. Which is, Uh, you know, there's another like 50 races left this season. So um, that's not bad. You know, they're going to get to quite a few. Um, Yeah, let's see what what comes of it. But uh, the story's going to be cheesy rubbish let's face it but the visuals <laughs> the visuals could be what saves it and Joseph Kaczynski is no stranger to spectacular visuals just go and watch Oblivion or Tron Legacy or mm. for that matter Top Gun Maverick uh, <laughs> I wanted to bring up the Williams and Mansell documentary that is now available on Sky Documentaries haven't seen it but because I no. watched a bunch of the British Grand Prix coverage on Sky which I don't normally do. I don't normally watch build-up coverage or anything, but I happen to be in and kind of having a chill weekend. So I put all that pre, pre-race pre stuff on and they were trailing this quite heavily. And, you know, this is the era I grew up watching F1 in when, when Mansell and his Tash were racing in <laughs> Williams cars in the iconic kind of blue, yellow and you know, Canon logo on the rear wing, etc. And then, you know, latterly on to Williams winning everything with Damon Hill and then Jack Villeneuve and so on. So I'm kind of interested to watch a bit of this and see see what it is. I don't know a great deal about Nigel Mansell's origin story as the mustachioed superhero. So I've never been his biggest fan. But this does look interesting. Sky Documentaries have a strong past Mm. of making interesting, good documentaries. So um, if you have Sky and you've got the documentaries package, this has been available since last weekend, I believe. So um, before the next pod, I will watch this and report back, um, probably whilst doing a very, very bad Brummy accent. (laughs) Also, since our last pod... The Grand Tour Euro Crash has graced Amazon Prime with its presence. Speaking of Brummies, that's got Nigel Mansell in it too. It has kind of got Nigel Mansell in it. Have... I'm assuming that you've watched it. I have. I'm now just reminded of Richard Hammond doing a continual <laughs> Nigel Mansell Brummy, which is very, very funny. I, I enjoyed it, right? It, this is... I don't think it's... It, it's not the best thing they've done. It's not the worst thing they've done. It's no India special. Um, oh, yeah, true. So I think this was kind of down the middle, get what, you know, you get what's on the tin kind of grand tour. Mm. It wasn't It wasn't brilliant. It wasn't terrible. Uh, there, Like you say, the, the, there are bits that made me laugh. There are bits that were pretty predictable. I don't think it went anywhere. Um, it felt a bit like a very overextended one VT of a normal episode of the Grand Tour. It's kind yeah. of an idea that got stretched out just a little bit too far. But that's where they are now. That is where they are. And they do not have very many more of these left in them. We've said it loads. I'm going to keep saying it. You know, James Mays hinted at it. They don't want to be doing this when they're 80. Um, <laughs> James Mays in his 50s. Clarkson's in his 60s, busy with a farm, as we all know. So, oh, I don't know. I know they're going to do at least one more 
And I believe that Clarkson's Farm has been renewed for a third season. Yeah. So Amazon haven't necessarily dropped him like the hot potato that everyone thought he would after his, and I'm not mincing words, fucking dreadful Colin column mm. about um, Meghan Markle. Uh, I I have huge respect for Jeremy Clarkson, but that was appalling. I could see what he was trying to go for, but it was just terribly, terribly executed. Anyway, mm. um I enjoyed it. I've spoken to other people who kind of went, no, it's shit, in the way that they always do. And other people who went, oh, I kind of enjoyed it. I'm, I'm a grumpy old man. They're grumpy old men now. I kind of sympathise with it. It was entertaining. And I didn't have to pay for it other than my £99 wow. a year Prime subscription. <laughs> I mean, the thing is that I was watching it and I was struck by... It's just solid. You know, it's beautifully shot. Of course. Which they all are. They are funny, of course. But it just lacked any sort of spark. It lacks... I there's found a, there's, it there's a odd. Section. I found it odd that May was kind of absent from lots of it because he chose a deliberately <laughs> shit car. Mm. That's like the second time they've played that gag and now it starts to feel deliberate. Yeah. And, but the thing is that... It reminds me of there's this, there's a section in uh, and on that bombshell the Richard Porter book where they talk about do just beating an idea to death until they know that it's actually viable and they kind of went what can we do that nobody's ever done and you think well there's a reason why nobody's ever done that thing in those cars and it it it's really hard to dislike it because like you say it's not the worst thing that they've done. But it almost does that thing of being kind of by their standards mediocre. Yeah. It's not good. It's not bad. It just is. It's like Mike Oldfield comes out on stage and you go, what's he going to do? Is it going to be new? Is it going to be interesting? Is it going to be in, in, innovative? No, it's tubular bells again. And you kind of go, yeah, I've heard I've heard that tune. I don't I like know. The tune. I'm not sure that's the yeah. analogy. I think the the analogy is... Mike Oldfield releases an album every year that is new compositions beautifully recorded in 96k audio (laughs) released on you know lossless files and it's full of brand new synths but it lacks the sparkle and imagination of Tubular Bells yeah and every time you go back and listen to Tubular Bells you're like no this is what I want to watch or this is what I want (laughs) to listen to but he comes out on stage and goes hey I'm going to do my entire new album for you and everyone's like oh really yeah there's a bit of that to it where you if you go back and watch any of the um, Top Gear at its peak or a good chunk of the episodes from let's say seasons two and three of the Grand Tour there's some good stuff in season one but it is surrounded by some ideas that did not work and they acknowledge that you know there's you've got that reminding you that this is what happens when they're firing on all the creative cylinders and well, I, I went back and watched Canage et Toi, which is just brilliant. I mean, I, I, I said on here that I didn't like Seema when it first came out, and I've, I've gone back and I've, that has grown on me hugely. But <laughs> Sorry, the, say that again? Take what that out of context. <laughs> yeah. but, if we did clips is- on this show, that would be the bit I would just be <laughs> clipping and putting on socials if we, were, if we were young enough and cool enough to do that kind of thing. Well, indeed, indeed. But... Canage et toi, you know, when they've got um, un film 
poor um, Monsieur Wilman, and they're, they're doing the review of the like Renault Megane as like a French philosopher would, and it's all in black and white with a child letting go of a balloon and stuff. And you just think that's clever and that's interesting and well done, and there's facts in it and it's humorous. And I'm sure the fact that Richard Porter was back involved with it had something to do with it. But, and, you know, they can do it. The Jaguar piece that they did for Grand Tour was still one of my favourites because it was them laughing at themselves. It was an and- excellent piece. I go back and watch that one a lot. I do love the fact that when one Jag breaks down, they just appear with another one and just write it off. That's wonderful. It's so clever um, and so enjoyable. And, yeah, you know, I, I wish they would do more stuff like that. But, you know, what I really, really wish... Um, to to paraphrase the Spice Girls, um, <laughs> I wish they'd got some other group of presenters coming along behind them, mm. who to take over the the mantle of the Grand Tour. Um, you know what happened when William Woolard decided that he liked chunky sweaters and high back chairs <laughs> more than standing with his foot on the bumper of a Ford Fiesta. What happened when you know? Why is there nobody coming up to take over this show? Because there's not hundreds, but there is plenty of very talented presenters of automotive journalism who could potentially take the show over. And they should be trying these people to find the chemistry because it's the chemistry. It's not Mm. it's not necessarily going to be like you're never going to find another Clarkson Hammond and May. That's not going to happen. But you could find another three presenters who work great together. I go back all the time to Top Gear US with Tanner Faust, Adam Ferrara and Rutledge Wood. They just worked. And the fact is... Or the first car track. Or the first car track. You know, they... Those three presenters from Top Gear US that was on History for like five seasons, they still... They're like still mates now. They see one another. They post on one another's Instagrams when they turn up. They go out (laughs) for dinner every now and then. They got on and they had chemistry and that showed in the show. And I think it's reasonably well-known knowledge that Harris and Matt LeBlanc got on really well and are still... Mm. You know, that showed in their televisual work. They were able to bounce off of one another and they were able to be silly and enjoyable and that came across the in the screen and they are mm. still friends now. And you can you can find those people and why are they not doing it? Does Amazon just want to let the Grand Tour die? Because let's face it, we haven't heard any news on Top Gear and I'm not convinced we will this year now. So what what happens when they hang up their their hats and go, we're not going to do any more Grand Tour now. You know, we've, we've fulfilled our initial contract with Amazon and we're all getting on a bit and want to do other things and don't want to do all the travel and, and everything else. Mm. Who takes over? Nobody? Does it just die? That seems absurd with, with corporations wanting to milk every possible thing <laughs> out of their back catalogue. I find it absolutely bizarre that there's no even attempt to try and keep it going with a with a new generation of presenters but i think the thing with the streaming sites is that they particularly amazon because amazon have always been quite um what's the word quite obvious and quite open that's the bit that prime exists as a way to get people to buy Prime subscriptions and therefore to do more shopping on Amazon. Amazon want to buy a known property that will 
they can put on the side of a bus or something that will drive the um, people to go to them. And, you know, you can say the same about Netflix to an extent. You can say the things the same about things like Nets, uh, Nebula and CuriosityStream. You know, they're not there to develop new talent. They're there to take somebody who's been doing this on YouTube five or ten years and say, how about you do a six-part series? And I think that's the breeding ground. That's where we're going to get the next group of people coming who aren't new to TV. Because I think, I mean, Hammond had done a bit of Men and Motors. Clarkson obviously done Top Gear. I think James May had never done TV. I think he was... He sort of came out of autocar. He'd auditioned for the original, um, that first series of Top Gear, I think, and they'd gone back to him. But he came out of the mm. automotive journalist world. They all came out of journalism and presenting in some fashion. Yeah. Um, because you wouldn't get, you wouldn't put your thing forward and you wouldn't get chosen if you weren't. Um, no. And that's like and, the and, last and, time they did that, though, was was the Chris Evans Top Gear reboot when, when they went off to do the Grand Tour where he plucked a bunch of people and sort of stuck them together going, I'm going to do everybody. And, <laughs> and that was Chris Harris's yeah. TV break. Oh, like God, you say, yeah. having been done it on, on you know, um, Chris on Cars with Autocar and then his own series on and Drive and then Chris Harris on Cars and so on and so on. And he was the one that stuck and all the mm. others kind of fell by the wayside. But I would love somebody to have the the guts, have the money, probably, to say, okay, well, let's take Jethro Bovington, uh, let's take um, Henry Catchpole, let's take, I don't know, um, you know, let's take a number of YouTubers and people that have experience in this world and but do it on a kind of the journalistic bent. Yes, it's got to be entertainment, but we know that there's an appetite out there. We know that if you get the right people and you get the right writers in particular, and I think this is why I I would always go back and say, if you look at the writing that Henry Catchpole does for his now Haggerty videos, more on that later, look at the writing that you know Jethro does in his column. These people have their voice. They know how to write. Alex Goy, I think, is criminally wasted that he's not presenting something somewhere on some YouTube channel about cars, because I think he's brilliant. But it's it's having a platform and having somebody who will kind of take these people in and go, you know, let's create a vehicle, for one better word. You know, let's create something. And I think it's it's a real shame. And I look forward to whatever the future may, may bring. And speaking of things I'm looking forward to, I can't wait to go and see Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. However... <laughs> that was fucking seamless. <laughs> <laughs> that was what was called a truck driver's gear change. Um, very good, would, very good. I would went you to... have happened to have seen it? <laughs> I have. I went to see it today. I had a day off because um, I had a really unbelievably busy last few weeks uh, with work. And so I uh, exercised my right to take some holiday, had a day off and... What are you going to do with your day off when your family are at school and at work? You're going to go to the cinema because it's pissing down with rain here. So I went to go <laughs> see Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 in the IMAX. And it was freaking awesome. Is it the best Mission Impossible movie? No, I think that title probably still belongs to Fallout, the predecessor to this in the series. But it is still like action filmmaking 
of a quality that we frankly don't deserve and that people aren't doing. You know, Christopher Mulquarrie has a very particular way of shooting action, a very particular way of writing um, scripts. He's got a great way with words and he understands how to how to make action work for a mainstream audience. But mainly he's been put on this earth to kill Tom Cruise on screen. <laughs> or at least to try, because that's what he's been doing for the last however many movies. And, you know, this movie oh, tries dear. pretty hard to kill Tom Cruise and, spoiler alert, it fails. But not for the lack <laughs> of trying. I really, really enjoyed this. One of the things I'll call out, because we've, we did a big series on Mission Impossible, if you want to go back and listen to those. Um, mm. The car chase in this is, again, another... It's another kind of entry in the brilliant car chases from Mission Impossible. It's visceral and it's set in Rome, which means you've got a direct comparison between this and Fast 10, which yeah. was just noisy and appallingly CG'd and generally a bit shit. And this was absolutely the opposite. And I was watching it going, these are the same locations, but the way it's cut, the way it's shot, the way they use the vehicles they have is so cl- so much more inventive. It's so much cleaner. So they go down a series of steps and the car is not horribly CG, but I bet it didn't go down those steps. But it's edited in such a way that you just can't tell. It's edited Mm. so cleverly. It's the same editor that uh, Macquarie's used for lots of his movies now, Eddie Hamilton, who is a really, really talented individual. And he's part of that, what I would say, the triumvirate of um, Tom Cruise, Chris Macquarie and Eddie Hamilton, who have gone from picture to picture and have crafted this way of making action that is just so propulsive and energetic, but clean. You can tell what's going on and they put you in the action. And this car chase features a a small yellow Fiat Cinquecento. Yes, which is in the trailer. It's electrically powered, but there are cameras strapped to it and you're you're almost in it with the actors. And it, it's spectacular. It's really good. Of course, it's being a mission movie. There are a ton of BMWs that get drifted around and smashed to bits because <laughs> that's what happens in mission movies. BMW are now, I think, a consistent partner. So you always see some BMW hardware get driven around, driven into, have the doors smashed off, etc., etc. Um but yeah, this fantastic. The only problem I can say with it is this is part one of two, which means you can't just go and see the end. Um, mm. And whilst this is a satisfying movie in its own right, it's still only part one. It's not quite as horribly cliffhangery as uh, Fast 10 was, but it's still a kind of like, and I want to see the rest of it now. <laughs> Roll credits. You know what? I think the Kermode and Mayo... Um, review said so said basically the same thing, but you kind of you got to the end and you were just like, <sighs> I want to watch the second part it right is now. Tense. I am. I know that they're trying to make me tense, and I deliberately tried not to get tense, and I found myself kind of shifting my seat and changing. But my hands were <laughs> clasped together at moments where you know that this is being put. They're, they're playing tricks on you, but they, it works. It absolutely works. Mm. It's a really really good movie. In in a what looks like a summer of really really good movies like I saw a trailer for um, I saw a trailer for Oppenheimer which I really want to see no car content in that but it looks awesome Uh, I saw a trailer for Barbie which I really want to see there's only that Barbie and Ken kind of Jeep thing (laughs) I don't care I really want to see that movie it looks cool as fuck and I saw a trailer for about a movie I've never even heard of called The Creator which is some kind of sci-fi 
awesome dyspo- dystopian thing, which looks awesome as well. So there's that. But if if you like if you like action movies, if you like great car chases, I can highly recommend Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning. It is worth paying to see it in an IMAX screen. And let's face it, there aren't that many real IMAX screens. I did a bit of reading around this, and what I saw it in was <laughs> what is colloquially known as LIMAX. Oh, which very is good. not actually a genuine. Well, it's not a 70 mil print, despite nope. you filtering by. If you go on the Odeon's website, you can filter by. Is it a 70 mil thing? And it says yes. It's lying. It's not. It was digitally projected, but I don't know if it was laser projected or anything. So this is. It's kind of a big regular cinema, but the picture was clean and crisp. The sound was deafening. Absolutely phenomenal sound. Like in the mm. car chase, they're being in this little. Fiat. They're being chased by some massive military truck that sort of rumbles around with this guttural roar that you shakes you in your seat and practically it's looking to be the brown tone and make you cack your pants. <laughs> and you feel everything. Like there is, for all that it is not 70 mil IMAX on a screen the size of a house, it's still a whacking great screen with a whacking great sound system and the picture quality is way better than a regular cinema. And, you know, go to an IMAX, you have the benefit of the steeper seating, which means you don't get to mm. see anyone's back of their heads. You're looking straight at the screen. It's worth it. It costs me £20, I think, yeah. for OD and IMAX. It's worth it. Even if it's not real IMAX, it's IMAX. It's still worth it. So do go and see it because that means more people will hopefully make more movies like this. Sorry, I'm, I'm now looking at a list of IMAX venues in the UK. There's a website somewhere that will tell you exactly like the screen size, the projector type, all of that sort of thing. You can go on Reddit or you can go on the actual the Wikipedia entry has a list of IMAX cinemas that are true IMAX, which is worth, yeah. worth looking at. Reddit um, is the other place I found them. But yes, you know, because this has come up because Oppenheimer uh, is only showing in its true 70 mil IMAX print in three cinemas in the UK. Yes. The BFI um, IMAX in London, in Waterloo, the um, Science Museum IMAX in London, and... Uh, and, and the Printworks in Manchester. Printworks in Manchester. And there used to be one in Scotland, but there isn't anymore. Did you see... I sent you a link earlier about loading IMAX films. I did. I watched that. It's absolutely bonkers. Like, these, these things... It's, it's so Heath Robinson and crazy, and like you kind of go, okay, I can see why IMAX costs more. <laughs> You get it. Um, this is not car related at all, but it is kind of cool if you love seeing behind the scenes stuff. It's, I mean, the thing is that we're so used now to the idea that most cinemas now are all digital projectors with content management systems. And at three minutes past seven, the file of whatever will play as long as the license has been downloaded. And the, to load... I think, well, in this video, and I'll, we'll put a link in the notes, to load a 45-minute documentary is a £400 spool that is um, horizontal, requires a lift for one person to lift it. You then have to run it through the projector onto the receiving spool. You then turn it on. There's like a 13,000-watt lamp in the projector, so everything's got to keep moving, and it's horrendous, and it's noisy, and it's brilliant. It's such and a thing. It's like watching a marble run, watching the film go from one really reel, reel to the other. It's absolutely crazy. Um, and yes, I have seen a few things in like genuine IMAX um, at the Science Museum in London in particular, but I have been to the BFI in Waterloo. I forget what I saw there. 
Uh, maybe it's the Dark Knight. It was the Dark Knight because I remember being really surprised when the film jumps, changes aspect ratio to that very specific one forty three to one that IMAX is. Mm. Um, Which, if you have the Blu-ray, it will actually shift the ratios as will, you're watching it kind as well. Of fills not, you, not, the, not quite. On the DVD. Yeah. Anyway, um, I haven't been to the IMAX yet. Um, hopefully tomorrow, maybe, because um, I want to see it for Oppenheimer. Basically, Christopher Nolan is now an ambassador for IMAX, so all of the screens are going to be Oppenheimer. I have been watching um, Freddy Tavares's P1 rebuild. As have I. Which, which I'm finding really, really fascinating, because how many times have we seen a Ferrari or a Lamborghini or whatever rebuilt it's loads. Whereas Freddy's found this car that is not only dream, drool-worthy and dream-worthy in its own right, but you're not used to going, oh, that's what it's like underneath. Oh, well, where do you get those parts? He's gone to companies who've refurbished them, who I'd never heard of. Yeah, there's, he went to, did a trip to the UK for a company that sells a bunch of things and refurbishes P1s and, and does stuff that I'd never heard of, and they gave him a tour of their facility. Mm. It's a very interesting... Like you can see why he's taken the gamble on taking out a loan to be able to afford to buy a wrecked P1 because you know every single one of these videos hits a million views within a day. You know it, it's yes. it's every single one of them is full of content you haven't seen before. Like nobody else is on YouTube rebuilding a P1, not like and this. That- and it's to his credit that he was willing to take that gamble. Oh God, yes. And I'm I'm finding it. It's required viewing. It's fascinating. I'm not sure I'm a hundred percent on board with his plan to make it do like fourteen hundred horsepower and upgrade it. Because I'm kind of like, did you not learn from blowing up the engine in your six seven five LT by whacking bigger turbos on it? Now I know there's going to be you know built internals, but I can't help thinking. Yeah, but how on earth are you going to map all the software to deal with all this extra power mm. and work with the hybrid cleanly? But presumably he has a plan for all this and we get to follow along with it. So it's been really interesting watching how that's been coming along. I'll agree with you on that one. Also, because he is... I think the the real genius bit of it is you kind of get the gruesome fascination of seeing what happens to a car when it's underwater. So it's not like... It's not like... It is. But the thing is, a lot of the cars... If you were to go to Lanzante, for example, where a pristine P1 rolls in and all the parts are cleanly taken off and brand new lovely parts put onto it and it rolls out, you kind of go, oh, that's good. Whereas with this, you're like, is there water in the turbo? How knackered is the gearbox? What state is the is the clutch in? You know, all of these things and every single thing you're like, Okay, what about that? Yeah, that's knackered too. How knackered is it? Really very knackered. Yeah, I found it uh, kind of interesting that the the salvage yards treat these cars so poorly, like they'll forklift them everywhere. Oh my God. Which I get it. Okay, it's been wrecked, but you don't need to make it worse. Are you surely you're trying to realise as much money from this as possible? Why are you sticking like forklift prongs through the chassis? Why are you wrecking these cars? So, I mean, I guess it's just, you know, people working minimum wage who who don't give a shit about these things, but... And probably expect them to be scrapped as well. They're not trying to sell. There's a lot of damage that wasn't done by the hurricane or landing on a toilet. Um, it's, it does, it does make me think, but yes, like every time they open up a new thing, there's sand in it or water in it or water and sand. Like, <laughs> I'm just convinced that car will never be clean. 
I could just imagine you just like sitting in it and just shifting uneasily from side to side yeah, and not wanting know, to touch I, the steering wheel. I'm, I'm fascinated by by this because it is it's an iconic car and it is from the era of McLarens where they weren't just bolt together. So I remember watching mm. um, another YouTube channel, VTuned, rebuilding a yes. crashed 720S and that appeared to be everything bolted on with a bit of bond- bonding for some of the major panels, but loads of the, the, the sort of brackets and everything was not, they weren't glued in place or anything. It was all bonds on The whole front of the car could be bolted on. Mm. Whereas this feels, because it's all so much more bespoke, um, there's so many there's going to be so many challenges in putting this back together correctly and yep. without i i can't help but feel he's going to get some tacit support from mclaren or mclaren specialists somewhere along the line i i just can't see how a guy in a workshop in florida is going to be able to <laughs> commission a brand new hybrid system to work with his uprated motor and have everything work together perfectly but this this is something that could not happen in the uk unless you're maybe maybe lanzanti would do it but this feels like this is perfect for the american tuner culture and and Mm. culture of rebuild it better for what we want to do with cars which is put enormous power through them and go in straight lines like there's that um i forget the name of the garage uh, um, is it the Cannonball Garage? The guy he's got that's the, 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 yes. the McLaren specialist. Yes. So he's got access to them and their expertise with all sorts of McLarens, which is a huge thing. And you'd go to maybe Thorny Motorsport in the UK, but they don't always have the best reputation. Or like Litchfield. I'm not sure. Again, you know, Litchfield doesn't always have. He's got a great reputation, but he, I know as many people who are suspicious and a bit sniffy of him as <laughs> as. Um, uh, as like his his work, although I suspect some mm. of that is because he's very good at promoting his work in the, in the UK automotive media. But uh, yes, I think let's let's quickly move on um, <laughs> from that and go. The last thing I think we both of us watched was the Sky feature where George Russell and Ted Kravitz get to fly Eurofighter Typhoons. Yes, which is really cool. I, a very unsubtly an RAF recruitment piece, but I don't really <laughs> care because anything involving Eurofighter Typhoon is cool, and they're very fortunate to be able to get into them and do performance mm. takeoffs and do a bit of um, aerial combat maneuvering, all that kind of stuff. It looked like great fun, and I I'd love to have heard more from George, particularly on what the G felt like compared to what he's used to in his car when they tip it into one of the big 6G turns and it is a Mm. continuous G that you just don't get in F1 is he sitting there going yeah I got this I'm I'm, you know I'm I'm a 20 what's it year old fit as fuck Formula 1 driver I can handle this whereas Ted is quite obviously not he's a little more rotund and a little older (laughs) I'd love to hear more about that but it was a really interesting feature and it's on YouTube somewhere isn't it it is. It is on YouTube. And so many of those features that they do, particularly on Sky and the run-up to things, can be so cheesy and awful. Whereas this wasn't... It wasn't a crowbarred sponsor piece. It just felt like they did this... Uh, they did the topic justice. They did... Both Ted and, and George were there genuinely enjoying it. And, yeah, I think it's... Yeah, I think it's a brilliant it's a brilliant piece and just whether you like F one or not, I would I would absolutely watch it. 
Shall we move on to our review? We say a review. Today? This is this is you reviewing a thing because I haven't seen this. I've seen the the Sylvester Stallone driven masterpiece, <laughs> um, but I haven't seen this particular one, which is 2018's driven. 2018. So I saw this on Amazon Prime on the um, the front page, and it stars Jason Sudeikis. And I'm sure that this is resurfaced after Ted Lasso. By the way, one thing we haven't mentioned on the podcast yet, the car casting of Ted Lasso. The idea of Roy Kent drives a G-Wagon. A dirty AMG G-Wagon. That is an excellent car casting. Um, Keely Jones drives an MX-5. Yes, that's you're right. That is excellent too. Um, let's think. Nate, Colin and the uh, Noble M six hundred. Yeah, he had a Lambo the, the season before. The M six hundred. I always watch and go. Oh, I'd forgotten about Noble. Really? <laughs> Did he really go and buy that from a man in a shed in, in Lancashire? Um, uh, Leicestershire, I'll sorry, have you know. Leicestershire. But it, uh, that one felt a little odd. I think him in the like the bewinged hurricane felt a bit more authentically mm. footballer. But uh, as did a lot of the uh, car park at Nelson Road. Yes. Um, also, I don't know if you noticed that Rebecca in the first series had a Phantom Seven, and with the success of of where Rex uh, Rexham, where um, oh Richmond got to, <laughs> she was in a Phantom Eight by the end of the uh, third series. You're saying words. I just she was in a Rolls Royce. It was just yes. a Rolls Royce. They're all the same. Anyway, so Jason Sudeikis in uh, Driven, which is the based on real event story of a guy called uh, Jim Hoffman, who was a drug smuggler, got caught by the FBI in the US and ended up being involved in the um, drug sting that brought down John DeLorean. The film itself follows Jim as he gets recruited, as he infiltrates John DeLorean's circle. It kind of goes through the time period of John DeLorean seeking investors for the car project through the development, through the UK government coming on board and getting to the point where basically they need the money. Um It's a very, very stylish movie. It's very much a sort of crime thriller. There are set pieces where different characters come together. They they could cause tension. They could cause problems. Um, Jason's character is struggling with the fact that he is an FBI informant. The production on it is really, really impressive. The... Um, the way that it's all shot, I mean, it it kind of fluctuates between being very pretty and kind of charming, interesting, fun film to watch, but it has that thing where it's it, it's I think directed and probably edited with a slightly clumsy hand. So when somebody's about to do something or something's about to happen, there'll be ominous music that kind of comes in underneath it. Um, Watching it and then looking on IMDb, so uh, Nick Hamm, the director, and Colin Bateman, who's the the primary writer on it, are both from Northern Ireland, where 
DeLorean, I think, is probably... From what I gather, the, the kind of the, the 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 view of DeLorean as somebody who brought jobs, brought industry to Northern Ireland, fleeced the UK government, particularly the Thatcher era UK government, for millions, like hundreds of millions of pounds in the early eighties, and then just had it all evaporate. Is he's kind of this kind of slightly. Um, What's the word? Not ambivalent. This kind of slightly divisive figure, and I think that kind of comes across slightly in the in the writing. One thing that did strike me though, as well, was we've had now what I think we've had three films on the podcast about Delorean and Deloreans. They do seem to keep coming up, yeah. And I blame you. I. <laughs> oh, it's entirely my fault. But I asked our friend uh, Jamie Wolf Kale, what is the fascination with DeLorean as a figure? And the best that we could kind of come up with between us was that, I mean, I remember when DeLoreans were a thing, they were derided in the UK, but everybody knows. John DeLorean. They all know the drug bust. They all know the futuristic car that became this kind of white elephant. And I wonder if there is an element of people that saw that story when they were six, eight, ten, twelve years old, and they remember the kind of the the the, the hype about it, the news about it, and they're kind of finding different ways to approach this story. And this is kind of interesting because it's not the John DeLorean story at its heart. It's the story of the guy who essentially kind of brought DeLorean down and who had to kind of create this um, this situation. But then John DeLorean's trial later on was whose idea was it? Um there was a film, 2014, called We're the Millers, which I don't know if you remember. Oh, the title rings a bell, but I haven't seen it. It was Jason Sudeikis as a drug smuggler. <laughs> um, and he recruits, like, two local kids and a stripper, played by Jennifer Aniston, which, again, Kermode and Mayo say, Jennifer Aniston, not a stripper. Um and they travel down to Mexico, I think it is, and they fill an RV with weed and drive it back to the US. Hilarity ensues. But it's played for comedy. It's played for laughs. And I kind of got the feeling that that was the better film of the two. And that's not saying much. I think Jason Sudeikis in this hasn't developed the range dramatically that we got in Ted Lasso. He plays... He's that kind of Will Smith thing where, you know when it's a Will Smith movie and the lead character isn't played by Will Smith, the lead character becomes Will Smith. Yeah, you get that with a lot of actors who maybe they're signed for what they do when they're almost on autopilot. Like he, he takes. You need a director to push a a star like that to not do not rely on their usual shtick, 
Like, and this has come up quite recently in Robert Downey Jr. shitting on a lot of his work in the MCU, which I think is unfair because he's been excellent in all those movies. But I mm. think he's said, you know, working on some of these other movies he's done since leaving the character of Tony Stark behind has meant flexing acting muscles that he hadn't really done before and not being allowed mm. to rely on his charming, fast-talking, you know, shtick. And, and, I, and I get that. And you do need somebody to if you have a thing that you're known for doing or that you find in your comfort zone as an actor, then you need a particular director to push you outside of that to get it. And Will mm. Smith, and quite often these people are also full of charisma like Will Smith. And therefore you go, oh, yeah. I just, you know, you watch Bad Boys 2, that's just charisma or that, or Bad Boys 1 for that matter. You know, that's just coasting on charisma. <laughs> Independence Day. Yeah, it's, it's coasting on his charisma alone. And it's only you get roles like Ali for him or maybe a teeny bit in the start of um, I Robot or I Am Legend where he puts mm. himself outside of his comfort zone for a bit. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I understand it. And Jason Sudeikis is known for his comic chops, isn't he? He's not... Yes. He's not always been known as a fully serious dramatic actor, although he can do it. And he has shown in Ted Lasso that he's he's very good at it given the right kind of material. And... Mm. Um, do I want to watch another movie about John DeLorean? I don't know that I do, or with involving that whole story. I get it. And it's an interesting I, story, but it's the kind of thing I... You know what? I'm, I'm going to be old-fashioned here. I'd kind of rather read a book about it. I think this is the thing, is that it's, a, it's an aspect of the story that I knew about the sting, but I didn't know how the sting really came about. And I'd probably read the name at some point and never never heard that story. Yeah, I haven't heard the name. I know about the sting and you know, this is yeah. John DeLorean's come quite recently on the Intercooler podcast as well, where they talk about how how that came to pass and how he got mm. he got done. And and I believe that the the sting itself ended up being, you know, the, how they did it was basically entrapment. So pretty much, uh, they weren't able much. to use that as much as they would have otherwise been able to. I, I think it's one of those films where if you watch it not knowing what happens, if you kind of, if you know nothing about the D- DeLorean, if you, it works if you know that the sting is at the end. It's the Titanic thing. You know the boat sinks. Um, and it, I, I think it's it's kind of edited and structured in such a way that it still works. I will say as well, um, I mean, Jason Sudeikis is the lead in this. Lee Pace, who plays John DeLorean, I think does it very well. I think he he's not... He doesn't become John DeLorean, but I think he... he kind of encapsulates the charisma he very, very well. He's an excellent actor. He's been great in so many things. Yeah. Uh, and he's, he's another one of those people that you look through his credits and you're like, I, I, it's not a name that I recognise, but then it's like, my God, he's done a lot of stuff. He's done, he's done stuff. He's been in the MCU. He's currently in Foundation mm. on Apple TV, but he was excellent in Halt and Catch Fire, um, yeah. amongst other things. There is... I think the clumsiness of the writing is kind of typified in there is an ambiguous ending, I will say, that goes with this film, which I've I've kind of gone back over and thought, is this a bit of a writing flourish? Are they trying to insinuate something that may or may not have happened? 
Um, but it was kind of emblematic of the film in that for all of its solid, fine performances and its decent script writing, it was, it was very much that sort of level. It was something that I watched, probably wouldn't watch it again. Good Sunday afternoon film. Like I say, if you kind of knew about DeLorean, you might find it interesting. I, I thought it kind of what typified it most was looking on IMDb. Um, it says, for the film's premiere at the Venice Film Festival, actor Lee Pace managed to find an original DeLorean car in Italy that unfortunately broke down and had to be pushed onto the red carpet for publicity photos. And I think... <laughs> that's that's so analogy, DeLorean. It, it entirely is. I think if you think about this as a film that has broken down and is kind of being pushed onto the screen, that's kind of the right analogy. Yeah, um, I tell you, it's not a yeah. it's not a classic. I will contest the it, sun, good Sunday afternoon viewing. I would actually say that my Sunday afternoons are quite precious, and I'm not going to watch <laughs> some. This is the kind of I might put this on a I might second screen this if you know what I mean. Yes, or you know I might watch this on a train journey or something but I would classify so I'm going to pick a movie that doesn't really have anything to do with cars in it or there, there is a purple 911 in it I watched Air which is also on Prime which is yes. Ben Affleck's latest directorial movie about the about shoe licensing about shoe, about, about shoe <laughs> licensing which is, sounds dreadfully dull but it's not It's that's a brilliant Sunday that, afternoon movie that is a good Sunday afternoon film and I'd also say um on Audible, there's Phil Knight's book Shoe Dogs. I saw that book in uh, Waterson's yesterday. I was I had train delays and I very nearly bought it. And I thought, you know what? No, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold off on that and just read to see if it's any good before I. I, I, I would recommend it. Yeah. I would recommend it. it but yeah, that's it, that is that movie that is and a that good kind Sunday of movie. Film, that's yes. a good Sunday afternoon movie where it's kind of classic filmmaking. You know, there's a and there's great performances and it's telling an engaging story, even if you think the subject matter is not something you might be interested in or isn't inherently interesting in itself, you still tell a great story. Or The Fastest Indian. Yes, Fastest Indian. That's, another, that's, a, that's a classic afternoon. That's a classic Boxing Day movie, isn't it, really? Yes. Sort of still full of turkey from the day before and you can just watch that while the family go to sleep. And it's good-hearted, yes. I, I, I suggest that this might not be as good-hearted simply because of no. the way the story goes. No, and, and I would also say if you want my, my distilled feelings on this, I would rather watch the Sylvester Stallone driven again over this. <laughs> wow, there's a recommendation. <laughs> I, know, I, I used to be like the cheerleader for that movie going, no, it's got good bits in it, mainly because there's a montage of like indie car drivers that is kind of cool because it's all slow-mo and it's very schmaltzy and cheesy, but you're kind of like, oh, there's Juan Pablo Montoya. Um, but I went back and watched it not that long ago. It's so terrible. It's really just the most dreadful thing. And I'm reminded because one of the trailers in front of Mission Impossible was the Gran Turismo movie. And the oh, Gran yes. Turismo movie has shades of driven in the on-track oh, stuff because God, there is just this thing that movie people seem to love, which is that canon. 
that launches cars into the air for yeah. no reason. And okay, I can kind of get it if you've got you know a chase going down a street and a car bounces off another one and then suddenly it's you know, kind of cartwheeling through the air. But when it's an LMP2 car just randomly going <laughs> in a straight, minding its own business, then all of a sudden it's 20 feet in the air. Yeah. I, I, every time I see that trailer, I think this movie's going to be shit. Yeah, this movie's going to be really, mind. really shit. So, yes. Anyway, let's move on shall, to things that are not to... shit and talk yes. about what Henry Catchball's been up to. The Aston Martin DB12. Um, Lots I, of I've films met... dropped about this. Almost all the, so They all came out with the embargo lifted. Of course. There's like tons of them. I haven't seen all of them. I started by watching Henry's review on Haggerty because you start with the best and then you cherry pick what other voices you might want to hear. But the voice I want to hear most reviewing it on film is Henry. I made a note that the writing is so good to the point that partway through, they do, he does an advert read for the Haggerty Drivers Club where he talks about being able to enjoy writing on nice paper stock. And if you don't like paper stock, then you can also read it online or something along those lines. And he's becoming just this most charming British voice that is, he's really developing his voice so well. And he's really, he does that thing where you could probably read his script and you go, that's Henry Catchpole. And he just delivers it in a way that is so his own. And I'm gushing like crazy, but this was filmed beautifully. I wish Haggerty would give proper film, uh, like, I you thought know, the technical credit. I thought the filmmaking was excellent. Now, I appreciate maybe some of the stuff is, is B-roll, maybe not, actually, um, from Amazon. I thought the... Um, from Aston, not Amazon. I thought the filming was spectacular really yes. slick drone work that's one of the things that i think the haggerty team do really well is drone work that can make you believe it's a helicopter mm. uh, it's really really slickly done and you know the the new car does look better than the old one i like the way the old db11 looks it seems like everyone now that the db12's out everyone feels like oh we can be honest about how much we hated the db11 now <laughs> i remember you all saying it was pretty good and giving it four out of five um, so it's one of those weird ones where it feels now now there's a new one out it's socially acceptable to, to rag on the old one mm. but it's a great film it looks beautiful the, the storytelling is once again really pure Henry I think the route they take through you know it's it is a joy to watch I watched it on I didn't watch it on my computer actually I watched it on the 4K telly and yeah. it made a huge difference. And I will be doing that for all of his films going forward is not you know, resisting the urge to watch them on, you know, on a my phone. computer, <laughs> on, well, not, not on a phone, but like I watch them on my yeah, iMac yeah. or something. But even though that's a reasonable size monitor, I don't have the thing running full screen. Whereas if you just watch it on a bloody great telly um, at full, full resolution, it looks absolutely fabulous mm. and you really do get to then appreciate the work that goes into making these things so if you haven't seen Henry's review of the DB12 go and watch it first and then I would suggest go and have a look at what Matt Farah did um, especially if you like kind of Anthony Bourdain style 
that is not for me, but he's admitted he was going for a Bourdain vibe on his review. I haven't seen that. I'm I'm going to watch that straight after, um, after it's, this recording. It's not to my taste, but go and see it because I like Matt Farah's opinion on these things. Um, I can't remember. Oh, uh, is it Throttle House have done a, 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 yep. a one? I want to watch that, but I haven't seen it yet. The two I've watched are Henry's and, and uh, Matt Farah's. So I, I'm going to watch the Throttle House one. I'm kind of not bothered about watching Top Gear's one because it's not Harris uh, doing it. It's yeah. I, I like their other writers, but they don't have as an original a voice. No. And I have to say, actually, I watched Throttle House's review of the Ferrari Puro Sangue. And those two are so underrated, I think, in the, in the UK sphere. I think they're so... Um, they're just really, really good. They kind of zing off each other. Yeah, they have a they great chemistry, well. and that that makes a difference. One of the, I think I highlighted this on the the last pod, the channel Savage Geese, who do a lot of sort of very mm. in depth reviews of Porsches. They've got a similarly kind of they developed a great rapport between the two presenters, where they do bounce off one another really well. They zing off one another, as you put it, so memorably, and that's what. You know, that's what the Grand Tour needs. Bring those people in. You know, <laughs> this is what you look for in in your presenting team is that that chemistry really that you is. get. So yes, I, I would um, I would definitely recommend checking out Henry's thing. And let's whiz through before the end. Yeah. Our so, video and channel choices. What have you What have you got for us? So speaking of people that are not well known to me, and it's entirely my fault. Um, Larry Chen for Haggerty did a did a piece about what what is car heaven like and it's a german youtuber who i think is two and a bit million subs and he's built uh, just this empire in germany where he has a museum of some of his cars but also cars from manufacturers on loan there is a burger restaurant with a dyno in it, um, workshops, car storage, this whole just beautifully, expensively finished um, business, really, you know, uh, educational stuff. I think he said he's he's got, what was it, something like 80-odd cars, like project cars. They, I think they're turning out films... So regularly, they just have this kind of backlog of cars and parts ready to go. And it's amazing. It's this guy who I'd never, ever heard of, but is a really big YouTuber who's created all this stuff. I mean, forget the Museum. This is a proper museum. This is just this whole endeavor off the back of a YouTube channel. It is genuinely amazing. And I mean, Larry's videos can sometimes be a bit baggy and a bit long, but this is just here's the next thing, here's the next thing, here's the next thing. And you're just like, my God, like how this guy's done it, I will I will never know. Um, I think all of his content is in German. I'm trying to sort of go through and find if if there isn't any, because uh, I know some people don't like that, but it's, it's really, really good stuff. Um, and Larry's film is good. That's worth a watch. Um, the guy that he goes to see is a guy called uh, JP Performance, Jean-Pierre Kramer. A good car name. Um, and yeah, definitely, definitely worth a watch. 
but make sure you have time to actually sit down and just watch the whole thing all the way through and you will be indoctrinated in this guy as much as his channel and his empire um from for my channel i've gone for the race which i know is not a new channel but over the last what month they have the ability to start churning out really really timely new stories well written well researched well presented not overly long but when daniel ricardo got announced at alpha towery they had a video that day they're very quick at getting them out and i think they've 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 been able to adapt to working with video as a media so yes. it, you know where they because these guys all came from autosport when autosport went crazy and put its price up to like 67,000 pounds an issue <laughs> and sacked all of its writers and they all went off to go and join the race or form mm. the race and they've all got really good at leveraging video so their podcast are video, but they also have these little video features. You know, why why Danny Ricardo driving the Alfa Tari might be just as bad as him driving McLaren, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. And yeah. they, they do with these. I don't watch every one because I do read a lot of their stuff on the website. I don't watch every one of their videos, but sometimes you just get sucked in and they are very well made mm. and they do they do good work. And not they that's do. you know, that's not as true. There's a lot of Formula One podcasts and stuff out there now like so much and so much of it is regurgitating what they read in the press or just a general kind of accepted wisdom without doing the work whereas these people are legit journalists and they have press passes and they are actually there doing the groundwork talking to people um who are involved rather than just watching the telly and then making their own guesswork and don't get me wrong i enjoy all of those podcasts that just sort of come off the back of the tv and enjoy it but they're not journalists they're yeah. fans uh, whereas these people are journalists and so you get that extra level of analysis and depth and knowledge that you might not necessarily get from fans who are knowledgeable but they are not performing original research themselves yeah, agreed. Agreed. What about you? What are your picks for this episode? Okay, so I have, for my video, I'm going to say, um, I mean, I've, I think I've highlighted his channel a long time ago, but Doug DeMuro uh, has started doing a sort of sharing the load of presenting his video. So he's brought on a couple of other people who I think are either part of his cars and bids empire or who are working with him now. One of whom is Alanis King, who is a, a well-known American automotive journalist. And... He and she did a a really engaging, it's almost like a podcast, it's a vodcast, let's say. Um, yeah. These are our bad automotive opinions where they go through <laughs> a series of like hot takes effectively. You know, you say something provocative and then proceed to explain why it's not actually that bad. So, you know, for example, Doug DeMuro says, you know what? I don't hate touchscreens in cars. Interesting. And then proceeds to justify it by pointing out like, you know, an early 90s Jag that has like a billion buttons on the dash. Um, and you kind of get it. What He's he's playing devil's advocate. Um, one of them I could not get on board with was, I think it was, uh, I think it was Alana saying that she doesn't mind people, you know, up badging their cars. So oh. putting M, M badges on non-M and I am like, no, I'm hardline on that. That is, <laughs> she's like, no, it's telling me something about you. And Doug's like, no, it's telling me you're a horrible human being. <laughs> it's very funny. It's worth watching just to see if you agree with some of these takes or not. But I would say keep an eye on Doug DeMiro's channel because he's also done a chat with, I think a friend of his who's got um, 
who has a Ferrari and some other stuff, who's also very knowledgeable. It's nice having these different voices that clearly bounce off really well with Doug. Um, mm. and, and he's putting these extra pieces together. So it's not just him jumping out from behind cars um, and, and yelling, this is the 2022, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, worth a watch. And for my channel, I'm going with a channel that's quite new, um, but you'll know the guy on it if you've watched any of the P1 videos. This is a guy called Jack Builds It. Oh. This is Jack from Tavarish's um, channel, who is his body guy, his, his, his bodywork guy, a bodywork expert uh, at fixing um, and performing all sorts of bodywork stuff from like... Um, panel shaping uh repairing crash damage welding sectioning in new panels he's started his own channel uh where he's bought an extremely fucked mitsubishi evo 8 and Mm. is busy rebuilding it and finding all sorts of horrors underneath that need work what i love about this is he's not there's no there's no kind of cutting away from the hard work of what it takes to fix these problems he's talks through every step it's very geeky in that level of okay here's what it's going to take to fix this bad repair here's why it's bad and here's how i'm going to do it and then he's like okay put the camera on a tripod and then he does it um and sometimes it's tavarish holding the camera while he's doing this they've clearly kind of got some kind of deal worked out where they help one another out it's really really engaging like i watched the first one i went this is a bit lo-fi i'm not sure and then i watched the second one and then i got sucked in and he's got more comfortable in front of the camera presenting and it's more engaging and he clearly has such a love for what he does but also such a love for the evo it really Mm. really helps that he's fixing up a car that he loves and he cannot wait to have it fixed and for it to be awesome because he's always wanted an evo yeah um so it's not just like oh i found this car from the scrappy and i'm going to fix it up because i want to get youtube views he's doing this because he loves it um and he's excellent bodywork um you know craftsmanship because lots of this is craftsmanship when you see someone doing really good body work it's 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 an art as much as it is a science and he's he's really really good at it so i'd highly recommend that if you like if you like kind of build channels Mm. and build channels that are about doing a great job and showing you how it's done not necessarily the some some of the ones that are either a bit more slapdash or a little more out there this is kind of meat and potatoes build channel and i really love it for that like you say this could be on old school discovery on a sunday morning <laughs> oh fantastic I, I must admit i've i've seen it referenced and heard it referenced I've, I've kept meaning to 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 have a look but now you've recommended it i'll definitely check it out definitely worth checking out um evo's a thing on on um car youtube now because um matt mormon's bought one only He's bought the exact opposite of Jack's Evo. He's bought like a mint one that's got like a thousand miles on it and is wow. for some absurd amount of money and is going to proceed to make it even more mint if as such a thing <laughs> is possible, which I find kind of weird, but, you know, um, each to their own. But anyway, those Indeed. are my two recommendations. And I think with that, we will call an end to this episode 61 of the Automovie podcast. Mm. Um, do tell us if you've enjoyed it. Do tell us if you go and see Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. Do you like the car chase? I think the car chase was absolutely freaking awesome. Just, oh, there's a really great fight scene in it as well that's that's on a bridge, beautifully cleanly lit and filmed. And it's a typical Chris McQuarrie kind of thing. It's It's action, but with emotional stakes. So, uh, great, great, great. I'll I'll give my my review next uh, episode. Yeah, please do. But for now, I think we are going to 
take the choice and choose to accept the mission to disappear off <laughs> and we'll be back in your ears hopefully sometime soon with another episode of the Automovie Podcast. Podcast.